The following has been brought to you by SJP World Media. One day I shall come back. Yes, I shall come back. Tear? Sarah Jane? Hello and welcome to the, yes, the Doctor Who pod. That one, (laughs) the only one. (laughs) The only one in existence i've listened to another doctor who pod actually right and also i call it the uh, another doctor who pod because we are the doctor who pod and they state in their intro that they are the only doctor who podcast in existence they do it very much tongue-in-cheek of course because there are multiple doctor who podcasts out there some that i would recommend as being absolutely fantastic um i won't do it now because their names off the top of my head escape me but and also you'll realize that i steal half my research from them but um well <laughs> <laughs> That's a lie. I do my own research. Anyway, we have got sidetracked already, only mere seconds into the recording. This is the Doctor Who pod, proudly brought to you by SJP World Media. I am Sai, and with me, as always, is my partner in time, Mr. Dan Griffin. How are you, my friend? Not bad, mate. Not bad. A bit, a bit on the delirious side. Been a bit poorly sick, and still just seeing the end of that off. And uh, we're recording. Uh, on a weekday evening, so it's uh, in midweek, so it's uh, it's prime brain frazzling territory. So it should be it should be interesting recounting this uh, this Colin Baker goodness. I was going to say, if you're if you're there, you know, concerned about you know brain frazzling issues and so on, a Colin Baker story probably isn't the best thing to dive into. But here we are; we can't avoid it. It is the it is the nature of the beast and the nature of the podcast. Uh, yeah. We are looking at the first part of something that went on to be no well known as it is it is called the trial of a time lord and it's it spans the entire uh 23rd season i've got that yeah, 23rd season yes it spans the entire 23rd season of doctor who it is broken up into separate stories and luckily enough the guest that put forward the colin baker story for season five of our show picked the very first one because if they picked a later one in the trial of the time lord sort of um narrative i might have had to have vetoed it and said look we need to go and do this one first when it might be a bit awkward so i'm glad they picked this one first dan yeah yeah it makes perfect sense and it's actually going to shape part of what we do um for seasons to come uh, we've been having a bit of a planning meeting and conversations behind the scenes um we don't have much colin baker left to be quite honest. Mm. And the vast majority is Trial of the Time Lord. The only other ones we've got are The Twin Dilemma and Time Lash. So basically any Colin Baker we cover from now on is either going to be Twin Dilemma and Time Lash or we might just go through and do Mind Warp, Terror of the Vervoids and Ultimate Four um, in consecutive seasons. Just because it'll make sense for us to do Trial of the Time Lord sort of in succession, if you like, as close as possible to each other. Yeah, I think that's the best way of doing it, making sure that we sort of do it in order, um, and sort of remove Colin Baker from any 
guest selections if we have it in future seasons or any selections for ourselves which we might do in future seasons and just sort of do the trial of the time lord in order as we run and leave the other two uh, what was it sorry time lash and uh, twin dilemma so yeah oh, be... fuck me do we have to cover that <laughs> yes we do we're going to co- we're going to cover everything Okay. But it's okay if, if it might be that we don't do that until season ten. I'll have retired by then. No, you fucking won't. You're doing you're doing this until we get through everything. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair Don't enough. Fucking hell or high water. Oh dear me. Um a little bit of background to this then. This is the mysterious planet, which was a title not actually given to the the uh the four parter that begins Trial of a Time Lord itself it was loosely used in production it was on scripts apparently but to the wider audience it wasn't called this at the time because the whole season was just referred to as trial of the time lord so this is trial of the time lord parts one to four and then the next story would obviously be five and onwards and so on uh so the mysterious planet is is a name that's kind of come into more prominence in later years it was first broadcast on the 6th of september 1986 through to the 27th of september 1986 so pretty much the whole of september was this story in that particular year as i mentioned and as dan mentioned we have Colin Baker as our doctor, and we have the wonderful, glorious, always lovely Nicola Bryant playing Perry, his companion. We have some quite recognisable faces in the story as well, which we will dive into when we get to them shortly. Um, it's it's an interesting one for me that this whole timeline of Doctor Who in this era, this whole uh, behind the scenes, I mean, not not what's going on on screen, because we have the issue of plummeting ratings, constant complaints. Uh, issues behind the scenes with the producer clashing with various other people and effectively Doctor Who was going to be cancelled now this was in February of 85 the the BBC announced that the 23rd season of Doctor Who wasn't going to air they were done it it was cancelled end of all done and dusted the decision was made there was numerous protests by the press fan groups um all sorts going on demanding that the show does not get cancelled let it continue uh, and so on um including i don't know if you've ever heard or seen this dan but including a charity single that was released entitled entitled doctor in distress which was endorsed by the doctor who program and and so on and features colin baker himself well worth checking out that's always very very um interesting shall we say Mm. after this backlash the bbc announced that oh no you've misunderstood us you've totally got us wrong we're not housing pedos behind these doors nor is Doctor who cancelled we're just putting it on hiatus and we will return in september 1986 with a new story and everyone was like hooray it's worked brilliant stuff we'll ignore the pedo shit because Doctor Who's coming back and that led to the uh 23rd season being the overarching trial theme kind of effort going across the whole of the season very much almost tongue-in-cheek because it was seen as being doctor who was on trial itself not just Mm. the doctor in the story but the program itself um this was also written by robert holmes he was wrote he 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 was was writing sorry the um or contributing a massive part to at least the whole of the trial of the time lord story this is one that he wrote himself these these first four parts making up the mysterious planet he actually died during the um writing of later stories in the trial of the time lord 
series, which is a big shame because he contributed huge amounts to Doctor Who and his name is attached to very prominent and popular stories in the 60s and 70s and earlier 80s as well. So that was a big change with the show also. Um, a big, big change, I suppose, Dan, that we notice straight away when the show begins is the actual opening credits and the music and so on. It's the only time this theme tune was used in Doctor Who. This particular season uh, used this 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 theme, this music, and it's the shortest lived one that actually made it to air, having only been on for one season. What did you think of this? Well, it struck me right away. It's my uh, my first notes. It's much funkier intro, uh, accompanying Baker's Baker's happy little mush. Um, I quite liked it. It was a bit different. It, I'm, I'm not sure if it sort of stayed with me, if that makes sense. You know, like first impression, like, oh, this is different, this is good. But I'm not sure it'd have uh, stood the test of time. But yeah, on, on first first listen, that sort of like synth bass mm. shit going on, I was, I was pretty happy with it. Yeah, okay. I mean, it was incredibly 80s, wasn't it? Let's be honest. I mean, we're, yeah. obviously, 86 is right in the middle. We're, it's an incredibly 80s take on the theme. Interestingly enough, with regards to the whole uh, Doctor Who being cancelled and then not being cancelled and then being on trial and all that sort of stuff, pretty much the whole of September, this first tale aired. And pretty much the whole of September of 86, number one in the UK was the Commonards with Don't Leave Me This Way. When I read that, I found that was quite uh, ironic and humorous <laughs> to me anyway. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is funny. Uh, something else you notice straight away before we get into the brilliant um, opening scenes is Colin Baker's hair when he gets out of the TARDIS the first time we see him. It's quite big and bouffant, isn't it? It's bouncy and, and fluffy. Oh, it's a big old throw. It is. It is. It's like a big blonde poodle. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But actually, just before that, I thought it was some really cool looking um, effects on the space station. Yes, that was what and I was going to come back to. Yes, and some really, some really grand music. This was, this was like Star Wars level on a TV budget. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, do you remember in the past? I think it was around looking at a serial from around this time, actually, with with Sill and so on. Mm. And I mentioned about this documentary. It was Varos. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mentioned about a documentary I saw. Um, about I don't know if it was mocking just television in general or old Doctor Who, and it took the piss out of a lot of the old aliens. And we had the Candyman on there and Sill from from this sort oh, of era, yeah, and all that sort of stuff. Um, I can't remember again. I, I can never remember what exactly what it was, but it stands out in my memory when I, as being young and watching this this TV program. And I've mentioned it on the podcast before. This clip here, though was put up as an example of how good Doctor Who could be from that same era in that same documentary TV program show, whatever it was I caught, where we get the the, the the sort of flying shot over this red, massive ship that reminded me... It, it had, like, red dwarf vibes, probably just because it was red. Yes, but, that's yeah, it. It's, <laughs> and it sort of twists and turns, and you've got the stars in the, in, the, in, in the sky and all this sort of stuff before a light appears and drags the TARDIS down into it. I thought this is just... It's glorious, isn't it? it it's so good. It looks fantastic. Um, I've, I've got it in my, in my notes just saying, this is high-budget shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, high budget is correct for 
I suppose in the context of what we're looking at, because Doctor Who never had a high budget. Let's be honest. You watch certain eras, of, of certain moments of classic Who, and you think that was done well. But even then, it was done on like forty-six p or whatever it may well be. And <laughs> this here actually ends up being the highest costing single scene or special effects scene in the history of classic Who, and it cost them around eight grand to make and film and and build the build the models and so on. And it ends up being the highest costing individual shot, I guess, of the whole of the classic runs era, which puts it into context when you think it was eight grand, which I suppose to, to Doctor Who, especially when you look at some of the stuff that happened in the in in the seventies when it was it apparently was stuck on Earth to save the budget and all that sort of stuff. Eight grand, it may not seem like a lot of money in television production terms, but at that time, especially in the context of Doctor Who always being skinned, that's quite a wedge, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. I mean, with um, one of UTT side project projects, Unstacking the Daddy Tree coming up, uh, we have the sort of the Dan does the job section where Rob just delights in finding random job adverts and, and seeing if I'd qualify for them. Um, we, did like, <laughs> we, did, we did like a conversion thing and bear in mind this is the late 70s so a little before this but I think it worked out that something like a 5 grand wage was the equivalent of like 35 grand now wow okay yeah so 8 grand from 86 to to now is a lot yeah. of money yeah yeah, without a doubt. I just want to very quickly apologise. I mentioned to Dan pre-recording, but I don't know if anyone can hear on the, on the actual podcast recording itself now. Uh, we've got a poorly cat in the house. Old man Ozzy is very poorly, very sick, coughing and sneezing, and he has spent the last three days solid on my bed, which is just behind me. Now, he has been completely silent pre-record, completely silent all afternoon. Now I've pressed record, he started sneezing and coughing. So if it picks up on the microphone ahead of time, I will <laughs> apologise to everyone. But he doesn't seem to really give a shit that we're trying to do a Doctor Who podcast here. The selfish well, I couldn't hear anything. Um, I've, just, <laughs> I've just had a quick uh, Google while you're saying that. Um, eight grand in 1986 is worth £29,378.31p today. Bloody hell. Normally the average budget for Doctor Who is just the 31p. So that's quite uh, quite a spectacular difference. The 31p, a curly-whirly in the best wishes. Yeah, yeah. well, not even the best wishes sometimes. We find out about that in, in future episodes, which I'm sure we'll cover. But <laughs> um, <laughs> Also, it really backs up a point that you've made, Dan, time and time and time again throughout the duration of our podcast. This is obviously made with models and cameras doing certain things and lighting now there's also of course the computer generated aspects of, of the light and the TARDIS it, 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 it is effects in a certain way but this has aged fantastically yeah you know this is you know pushing 40 year old television and it has aged wonderfully well practically every time exactly exactly and you look at the computer generated effects that we get in new who some of those look worse than what we're looking at here in 86. Oh, God, I watched it. It's not Doctor Who related. I, I've been going on a, a binge of superhero movies that people regard as crap, just to see if they're really that bad or if they're just sort of mediocre. There's a podcast in that. So one of them... <laughs> <laughs> don't tempt me, Frodo. Um, one of them I watched, I watched Ang Lee's Hulk from 2003. I've never seen it. Uh, shock. Don't bother, actually. Okay. It, that's, <laughs> Problem that, solved. <laughs> that's one of the few that is crap. And a lot of it is in the CGI. Like, the CGI Hulk, they've managed to make look like a giant muscular baby. 
Okay. Like it's got the body of the Hulk, but the face looks about thirteen. It looks yeah. like if he it looks like if he spoke his voice would break. Huh. And just so so many so much bad shit in it. And that's only from two thousand and three. And it looks awful now. So yeah, this is doing the practical effects over CGI uh, debate is is non existent. Mm. Oh, yeah. It's practical all the way. Yeah, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Um the doctor steps out of the TARDIS, as we mentioned, with his beautiful bouncy bonce, and as a little look around, sees a door, thinks about knocking for a moment, and then decides, nah, bollocks, and just walks right through. And I love that tiny little touch there, whether that was a Colin thing or a production thing or, or whatever, or a direction for him. It's just great because it's just that pompous arrogance that the doctor has sometimes, especially Colin Baker's version of the doctor. And I just think it works so well. Just a little knock. No, maybe not. And just walk straight in. And here we see uh, the person who we we go on to find out is called the Ballyard. And they are talking to the Doctor. Uh, they are in charge of something at this exact moment in time we are unaware of. Before lights start coming on when the Doctor points out that there are more Time Lords around and these Time Lords have summoned him and took him out of time itself to come to this uh, this meeting, I guess, is initially how it's portrayed. Um, the Valyard is played by Michael Jaston. He is in Doctor Who a great deal. He, he's quite famous for playing the Valyard uh, in numerous um, different stories, as well as being only fools and horses and so on. Um, who sadly actually passed away just at the beginning of this month, maybe two, three weeks ago, as we record this yeah, episode. It was, it was so the 5th of February. Yeah. He was 88 yeah, years shame. old. Yeah, real shame. Um, I say in different stories, all stories obviously are referencing the the this series of Doctor Who. He's in all the episodes for this particular you know, trial of a Time Lord, but quite a prominent role, obviously, as, as we see straight off the bat. Um, alongside the Valyard in this uh, this scene, which is obviously a courtroom of some description, but we're, it's being viewed out at the moment as more of an investigation or a discussion and so on. Um, we have the gravy lady that I mentioned on last week's podcast, Dan. So I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure you got a great big northern grin to your mush. I do indeed, and I will be calling her Judge Bisto from now on. Judge Bisto, there we are. Uh, we are, of course, referring to the sadly departed Linda Bellingham. Um, great actress. And she, she was in all, you know, um, Second Thoughts, and uh, she was on Loose Women for a long time. I think she was in um, All Creatures Great and Small. Was she in that at the same time as Peter Davison, maybe? Did their times cross over? I don't know. No, what was that? Sorry. All Creatures Great and Small she was in, but oh, did her no time... Idea. I never, I never watched it. My parents loved it, so it was one of those programmes that was on the telly when I was little. And I remember getting to a certain age and having watched certain videotapes uh, and thinking, oh, Doctor Who's in that? But that was my only kind <laughs> of, you know, but there we go. Yeah, sorry, I was a little bit distracted then because uh, just uh, my mum just popped, uh, popped her head in to let me know that Liverpool have just gone 2-1 up. Uh, they're playing Luton as we speak, so I'm, uh, I'm a very happy boy. Uh, well, there you go. I wish we did have time travel and we could head back to when they were still one nil down. But never mind. Um, we... <laughs> um, the gravy lady is obviously in charge of this. Uh, well, let's call it what it is. It's a trial, even though they haven't named it as such just yet. And the Valyard is putting forward the, the prosecution, I suppose. And they are trying to say that the Doctor is in a spot of bother 
for all of his constant meddling and effectively breaking Time Lord rules. Oh, he's, he's charged with behaviour unbecoming of a Time Lord and transgressing the first law. Mm. He's an incorrigible meddler in the affairs of other planets. Because in this serial, nobody can use three words when they can have 15. This is true. It's very Time Lordy, though, isn't it? Whenever we see... Whenever we see the Time Lords, even in New Who, I think this is an issue. A classic Who, it's really bad for it. Mm. They, they try and have this whole sense of grandeur and um, arrogance and that they're above. Yeah, exactly. And it, it, and it, they try and come across educated and they just come across as kind of dicks. Yeah, too many words uh, and, and the clothing makes them look like fucking idiots. And <laughs> it, it's just <laughs> so over the top and ridiculous. But I suppose. Uh, I suppose in a way that helps with how the Doctor is because he's rebelling against them, maybe. I mean, that's the conversation for another time, but but, but there we go. Um, we are going to see, apparently, uh, evidence of the Doctor's meddling and, you know, have um, stuff brought forward to the trial here, the the, uh, the Bisto Lady and the various other Time Lords who just sit there in their silly garbs behind her. And this is going to be brought to us via the Matrix, um, because that is all seeing, all knowing, and saves all information and so on. Which you know, all time lords, wherever they are, apparently is is always seen on this on the matrix, and the information is always in the matrix. Which that so makes me wonder. I was going to say, bloody hell, can't jerk off and quiet there, can you? But, <laughs> it's that they're actually see they, they come across all like prim and proper, but they're actually a race of complete exhibitionists. Yes, indeed. Every every Time Lord conception is on file. Yeah. You can't, take, you can't take a shit without somebody watching. I wonder then if that's the case. Because they can access the Matrix whenever they want. It's part of their... Um, religion's the wrong word, isn't it? Part of their culture, part of their... Yeah. The way that their society. life... Society. <laughs> yeah, oh, there you go, society, right. If they can access that whenever they want, and they can view... Well, any the president can. Yeah, okay. Does that mean that their porn industry has took a massive hit because they can just go watch whatever they like? Yeah, well, as soon as they figured that out, Time Lord Hub went straight down. Yeah, lost all the advertising rights and all that. Yeah, although on the bright side, it means no pop-up ads about horny Time Lords in your area. <laughs> Young Time Lords. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Why did you take it there? Really? Well, no, I'm just saying, how would you define a young Time Lord? A young Time Lord could be like, you know, 900 no, I said, years old. I said, I said horny Time Lords. Oh, sorry. I thought you said, okay, right. I, I, I miss her. Ooh, Freudian, Ooh, Sam. Freudian. You, you, you could get a job at the BBC in the 80s with that kind uh, of attitude. I think we're going to be digging at the BBC a lot during this. But we'll get back to that. <laughs> so I'm just going to get it out of the way now. This, yeah. we're skirting around it. We're nearly 25 minutes in. This whole thing is a lot of word salad and a lot of talking. Yes. So much. Well, I find that. Uh, what, what are you referring to? The whole story that we're watching, the whole four parts, or just or just the courtroom bits? All, all, all of it. Right. Okay. All of it. You've got the Valyard and the Time Lords. Obviously, that's their character. You know, they're there. To, they're, they're highly intelligent. They're going to talk in that manner. But. There's no reason for when we get to him, we'll see him in a second, uh, you know, as we're going through, Blitz. There's no reason for Glitz to be as robust as he is, other than to come across as a smarmy prick. Mm-hmm. But we don't need to see that as often as it's put forward, and it just feels like killing time. Yeah. Yeah, okay. 
Yeah, okay, I get that. Um, I find uh, again, well, this is you know, I suppose something that needs covering for, for the people listening. I mean, I imagine the majority of people listening have seen this already or have watched it back for the purpose of the podcast. Which, of course, we thank you that you're following along with us. It's then split into two, isn't it? Um, yeah. I'd say eighty-five percent of what we're watching, perhaps more, is the story itself, and then we get these little cutbacks to the courtroom. Mm-hmm. Where we get the little bits and bobs between the doctor and and the the vineyard and so on. Now, I find that when we're in the actual story itself, there are moments when there's it's nowhere near as bad as when we're with the time lords. They are they are masters at this shit. But when we're with the doctor Perry and the others in the main story, yes, it's bad, but it's interspersed with scenes of just running about a lot, which kind more, of breaks it down. Yeah, it kind of breaks it up a little bit for me, I guess. Because I didn't notice it as badly when we're away from the courtroom, potentially. Maybe, but it's things like the when we see them later on, and we'll come to who they are, but when you've got the twins who are prattling oh, at each other yeah. about logic, and I, it's, it comes to something when even I can't be asked transcribing what they're saying. Mm. It's not we will beep boop. It's not anything entertaining. It's just them thinking out loud. And again, we don't need to see that as often as we do in this series. And I actually went um, a bit different in my note-taking of this. Normally I'll I'll watch, you know, I'll watch either either watch it all in one go or I'll do two episodes and two episodes because it's a four-parter. This one, I'll watch an episode, wait a few days, watch another episode, wait a few days, and then just because of the time we had to record, I had to watch two in a row. Okay. Did that affect how you how you viewed it then? Because normally you watch a bit more in one hit, whereas when this aired, it was once a week. So, uh, no, it didn't. I was just I was still sat there thinking, my God, can somebody just shut the fuck up and something happen? Which That's is weird because because a lot does go on. Yes, but it's a, it's going to sound daft because I'm not against the idea in principle. It's a very chatty serial. And there's a lot said that uh, you know that covers old ground and covers the same ground, or or it's so it's like somebody it's like a, a sort of a state on, on it's on a player stage show when somebody goes into a soliloquy and they're effectively expressing their thoughts out loud. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just okay. Like, okay. Great. You, that could have been more concise and or just do the thing. Hmm. Just, but it's because it comes from all angles. The, when we cut to, you know, that you got the time lords, that'd be fine. But you, then you throw in glitz and him with his, you know, sort of airs and graces and, and pretending to be a gentleman when he's an assassin and thief, you know, for hire. Yeah, he's a dirtbag, isn't he, glitz? Yeah, he's a dirtbag, and I, I get why they do. But even, even the um, when we get to him, the villagers later on, and uh, just uh, what's her name, Jacinda. Jacinda, the, the, leader, the leader of the, the queen. villagers. Oh, yeah, the queen of the villagers. Queen of the three. Yeah. Catrice, Catrica, Catrica, sorry. Catrice, Sims from the carry-on films, anyway. Yeah, but even even she at one point, they just stop what they're doing. She gives like a 30-second like, rallying speech, and they just carry on what they were doing. And she's, always, got, she's always waffling on and got something to say about such and such is forbidden, I will see it in the flames, I will see it in the flames, you cannot do this, out as star travellers. Mm. It so got now, tiresome. When I when I see, I get the impression we won't be jumping around because we've got a four parter to cover and really half an hour in, so we may be jumping around a little bit. To be fair, but 
I, with regards to Joan Sims, now she's been brought up. I love Joan Sims. I love the Carry On films. I love how silly they are. Yes, okay, they're incredibly dated now, but it brings a, a smile to my face. It reminds me of sitting there watching them with my granddad, my dad, whatever, when I was younger. Yeah. So seeing Joan Sims pop up on television here, that made me smile. She's in Doctor. She is from something that is essentially a, a British, you know, cultural sort of uh, thing that happened with the Carry Ons and so on. God knows how many, 25, 28 movies, whatever it may well be. And then here she is popping up in something else that's quintessentially British in Doctor Who. That brought a smile to my face. Then mm. the moment she started talking, I was like, oh, no. Because it just didn't... I hate to talk like this because I think Joan Sims is normally fantastic, but it didn't work for me. It felt mm. like... It felt... You know when you go and see kids do a Shakespeare reenactment or kids do okay well or you see kids go to do a, a school play whether you see it on the TV or, or or whatever and there's ridiculous overacting and everything's done just over the top and it, it's too much and it comes across very amdram rather than a, a bit hammy yeah, okay, yeah. Rather than just trying to be large for the purpose of getting at it to the people sat in the back, so to speak. Mm. That's the vibe I got from Joan Sims here. And I hated the fact that I thought that. But once it was in my head, every time she was on screen, it came back. It wouldn't go away for me, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'll be honest, I didn't know who Joan Sims was. I've, I've never really watched a carry on films. Um, okay. But yeah, she was just sort of there for me, and, and it felt like she was given a lot of filler, and a lot of her story was there to be filler. Mm. And I keep going back to it, but glitz, just constantly. I get what they were going for, and and it's not a bad idea, but just it can be a smarmy twat bag without waffling on for five minutes a scene. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, let's let's talk about those now. We have. Effectively, taking the Doctor and Perry away and the courtroom stuff away, the world that we're kind of arriving into in this story is uh, the planet Ravalox. And it's very, very much like Earth, we're told. Same atmospheres, loads of stuff very similar to Earth. And there is um, three parties, effectively, on this planet. There are the the villagers or the, or the savages, I guess, who are living on the surface, and then we have a race of um, below-surface dwellers who are looked after or, or serving, sorry, uh, somebody they refer to as the Immortal, who is a big fucking massive robot. Thankfully not Hulk Hogan. No, definitely not Hulk. That'd be a strange twist, wouldn't it? End of the first episode. <laughs> the Immortal will see you now. And Colin Baker swings the doors open and he's like, yes, well, Dr. Brother. <laughs> well, let me tell you something, brother. <laughs> Yeah, the, the immortal one is this uh, this massive robot that they serve. The people underground are led to believe that above ground on the surface, there's an almighty fire. Everything has perished. You can't live up there and so on. Whereas the people above ground who refer to themselves as being three are led by Joan Sims. And they live a very primitive kind of life compared to those down below. Those down below have power uh, and all sorts of limited amounts of water. But they're in a sort of standard 80s 
sci-fi area. Everything is incredibly brightly lit, which is, you know, the 80s way, I guess, for science fiction. And they're all wearing the uniforms. And for some reason, additional lights on these helmets they wear when the lights are already incredibly bright around them. But that is what it is. And then above ground, it's almost like some kind of uh, historical Anglo-Saxon budget, uh, sorry, Anglo-Saxon documentary done on a budget. They live yeah. in they live in mud huts and all dress very brown, don't they? Quite, yeah, but that, I quite like that juxtaposition between the, the surface world and, and the subterranean. Mm. I thought that was a clever little touch. And I, I've ragged on a lot of, of the serial, but coming to the end of this, um, the, the first part, you know, I know we'll go into what actually happens, but this first part did a lot to keep me interested. World building, well, then it built a yeah. lot around what's going oh, on. Oh, yeah, you get a lot to it. You know, even the early, the early interactions between Glitz and Dibber, and and you know, we get it. We're gathering that Glitz is the brains of the operation. Dibber's his, you know, dog's body mate, whatever. Um, you know, and he's obviously violent. You know, not averse to violence and all the rest of it. It it does a good job of making me think. Oh, okay. So there's something. There is something here because they find a, a sign for Marble Arch Station. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then and you think, well, it, it's not Earth because it's Ravelox. Which I keep wanting to call Gravelax, which is that salmon dish from that advert when that guy's trying to figure out what to order in a posh restaurant. Uh, okay. So and he's like and he's, my... and he's subtly Googling it under under the table oh, yes. to embarrass yeah. himself. <laughs> I keep checking that I've spelt it right with Ravelox because I keep going to call it Ravelox, but I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. That well, makes me think about food, that's a shock. Um, <laughs> but yeah. And the whole world building stuff and explaining all the two million years in Perry's future and it's it, the planet's completely out of position, it can't be Earth, but there's so many things that Perry sees that are Earth-like and she's having trouble reconciling that and it's the Doctor's lack of emotion and, and all the rest of it. All that is really good. Mm, yeah. And, and gets very, very interesting. Um, sorry, you want to pick up where you were? <laughs> Well, oh, yeah, well, the, the, the third party, I suppose, in this tale is that of Sabalom Glitz and his little buddy Dibber, who have, first of all, some incredibly, you know, very finely tuned, finely trimmed, finely sliced up and interesting stuck facial, on. stuck on <laughs> facial hair. Um, <laughs> they are kind of, well, the, the doctor refers to them as a pair of rogues quite often, doesn't he? And they are just, just dirtbags looking to make a few quid, I suppose, any way they can. Uh, and those are your three, I suppose, moving parts. Those are your three main parties in this story. And it really, for me, drops into something that Classic Who does a great deal. And as much as I hate to say it, has been known to do it much much better than this and that is that we have two warring factions or two opposing groups shall we say of people on the same planet one doesn't trust the other and vice versa whether they're at full-blown war or not and the doctor arrives to say well hang on a second you actually both got a common cause which is this body here i will destroy them everyone can live happily ever after get back in the tardis off i pop it happens yep. a great deal in classic Q, and i I like that as a general storyline kind of vibe. Here, it tries to do the same thing. I mean, we've seen it with Doctor Who and the Daleks way, way, way back in 63. We've seen it numerous times with various other tales. But here, the issue, I think, is there's no... 
there's no people on either side of the divide. So the the people living underneath the ground in the sci-fi corridors with the big robot, or those living above ground with Joan Sims, there's no one on either side of the divide that you, in my opinion, you actually kind of end up liking. There's yeah, no one. There's no true. one really rooting for. There's no characters. I mean, we'll run through quickly a couple of the characters now. You have Murdine, who's like the the head of security, head of police. Now he's all right in the end. Yeah, but that's the thing. He's all right. Is that enough to hook you in? No, I suppose they did. They do do a nice twist with his character later on. I'll give him that. Mm. When you find out he's not actually a, a, as big a murdering scuzzball as you thought. No, and again, we get the standard classic Doctor Who Nazi vibe from him as well, I think. Well, yeah, because he's carrying out the will of, of of the big bad without question, you know, fully devoted almost. The well, Hitler and Hogan. Across as a... <laughs> like the yes, Hitler and okay. Hogan robot, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, yes. We have uh, Balazar, who is the, the wise man, I suppose, for those under the surface, who, who yeah, is, no. he reads the books. And I, that him, I like. He made me laugh a couple of times, but even then, I'm thinking, ah, oh, mate, just go and have a wash. You're like, you smart. HM, the, the great author, HM Stationery Office. Yes, <laughs> that was funny. Now with Balazar, Balazar's pff, as close as you can get to a likable character, apart from Perry. Um, yeah, yeah. In this, but even then, he's still got a bit of the smug prick about him. Hmm. Because I am the learned one. I read the books. I am chosen. I am superior to my fellow, you know, to my fellow man in the tunnels. Yes, indeed. Comes around um, in the end when he's covered in grub. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have a character called Broken Tooth, who actually doesn't get his name until I think episode three, but we see him quite often at the side of Joan Sims. And he just reminded me, because he's wearing. Like uh, clothes that I suppose are, are done in a certain way to resemble the likes of Balazar and someone who are under the surface in a clever little way of tying it up that they, they've escaped from under the surface and they're wearing mm-hmm. those old clothes and so on. But they're obviously you know living in mud huts and whatnot, so it's all dirty and grimy. And then their hair is a bit wild and, and that. And it just it was just literally a strand of rope being used for a belt, short of being the guy on the far show that comes out the warehouse and goes, <laughs> I have been mostly eating walnuts. And then going back, that's what he reminded me of, you know? He <laughs> reminded me of a, um, of a, a cheetah creature from survival, but like mid transformation. And it's just gone a little bit uh, wrong. Okay. Yeah. I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and then we've got, um, Humker and Tandrell. Who are the two, yeah, they they just want to get in the bin, mate. But again, they you know they were taken as they were taken as effectively children or teenagers, and just forced to work in the in their own company and the company of the immortal. Yeah, well, the way it was worded, let me quickly find. It sounds like we're going to just go jump around a little bit here and then run through bit by bit. But let me just find my note on that specific part. Um, no one goes in or out of the immortal's castle. Balazar explains, apart from two especially selected young men, which again comes back to the issues of the BBC in the 80s, doesn't it? Yeah, if the immortal was a person, you'd have deep-rooted concerns about that. Yes, if the immortal was a person, he'd be hosting Top of the Pops, is what we're saying. <laughs> it is. Let's, let's just call a spade a spade, you know? <laughs> oh, God. I'm just a post-even right. 
So I'm just thinking, Steve Wright's died recently, and as, as far as as far as it's been said, he wasn't an honestly presenting top of the pops. No, I'm not talking about Stephen Wright. Obviously, there's a there's a pretty obvious top of the pops presenter I'm referencing here. I know, but I'm talking about the one who's died recently, not the uh, not saddled saddle bollocks. Yeah, there we go. Uh, we also have the character of Grell. Do you know who that was? Uh, he was the one who tried to get Murdine to kill the Doctor. Um, he can get in the bin. He's a stooge. Yeah, and again, and that's kind of it. That's that's the listed cast in front of us. You know, apart from the main characters. Yeah, apart from the apart from, obviously apart from the Doctor, Perry, uh, Glitz, Dimmer, and so on. That's the main characters on either side of the divide here. Now, I, we go back to other other stories like this. I mean, okay, we go back to sixty three and, and the Daleks, mm. and you've got the the Carleds and the Fals. There's no obviously the Carleds were supposed to dislike, but at least you find yourself rooting for the Fals because some of them are nice. Some of them make friends with Ian. Some of them talk to the doc. There's a reason to invest in those characters, and whereas watching that story it drags it's a six mm. or seven parter and there are moments where it does drag it the, the the times when it does drag i suppose it gets allows you to invest in the characters individually rather than just thinking of this particular bland race of interchangeables that you know are at war with this other race so the doctor must sort it out yeah i feel a little we we praise the world building at the beginning of this story but that's all it was for me. It was world building. There was no actual no, character. No character. <laughs> yeah, I was just about to say the same thing. All world and no character. Yeah. Um, and we find out, if, to be honest, weirdly, one of the characters that's got the most personality is the immortal. That's actually a, like a, a slab-headed robot, effectively robot Harry Maguire. Um, <laughs> who, who's sort of talking about his, his function and his purpose and... and the whole thing where robots can't see, you know, they can't see beyond its own programming. Mm, and it's kind of like, even, even then, it's a, the, the villain of the piece is the immortal. And Adrathros, as we come to find out, that's his name, or its name. But you can't call it evil because it's carrying out its function and keeping people alive. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's having to, quote-unquote, cull people, and kill people, but that's still within the parameters of its programming. In that it's got to maintain a, pop, a certain population, ration the water out, ration the food, and that's uh, there's, a, there's a discussion about it later in the series of, of the robot not being able to comprehend what comprehend what life means, because mm. the robot can't separate life from existence. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. The robot is pr- programmed to keep the people or a certain amount of people alive. It needs a couple of people to carry out maintenance that it can't do thing. itself. It, <laughs> it, needs to, it, needs, it needs those couple of young boys to maintain it, does it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, okay, okay up, we know what you're grease, doing. Crease up that crankshaft, young man. Yeah, hiding in plain sight, BBC, we get you. You're proper on with that tonight, aren't you? I don't know, I don't know where all this has come from. I, <laughs> I don't know if something's upset me that I've, I've got twigged. I don't know if it's something subconsciously. I don't know why. It's, I don't know why I'm so cross about this tonight. But there we go. Um, <laughs> the, yeah. Let's talk about the robot itself, then, shall we? Let's talk about. Yeah. Um, I want to keep saying Jeffro, but that's not right. Jaffro. 
Drathro, D-R-A-T-H-R-O. Drathro, right, okay. Now, again, I know it's, it's kind of a redundant statement, but I make it fairly often on the show. It is very 80s sci-fi, isn't it? It's, it's a big old chunky robot. Yes, but this one, and obviously we get is it the service robot they refer to in a little while. They, mm-hmm. they send they send the service yeah they send the service robot out to catch. Drathro spent centuries in the company of the service robot and decided to branch out into young boys. <laughs> oh my god! Um, they they look like if you just gave them a bit of a push, they'd fall over. Yeah, bit wobbly, bit wonky. Yeah, especially that uh, the, the service robot who's been sent out to go and capture people and so on. It's got caterpillar wheels, and it looks wobbly as hell, even at its first appearance when it's supposed to look all <laughs> splendid and all that. And there's one scene where it's chasing the doctor, and it gets to the end of a corridor and has to do what I'm assuming, considering the cuts that they made, it was like a nine-point turn. Yeah. to get around this corner. So they sped the footage up to make it look like it was this super powerful robot. And it just really made it look pretty shit. Yeah, it just went bit and around the corner. It was, it was such a blatantly shit camera cut. Mm-hmm. I kind of loved it for that. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, as big scary robots go, though, it didn't quite work for me. I, I looked at the, the the wobble bot, shall we call it, that was sent out to chase the doctor, the wobbly service robot, and I thought that's that's shit, that's rubbish, that that's not intimidating. It, it looks like it looked like something off off Robot Wars. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But not made by somebody who was really good at Robot Wars. Made by someone's drunk uncle who just sort of knocked a few panels of metal together in his shed and went, "That'll fucking do." I'll drive down. At least I get on the telly and meet that bloke from Red Wharf. One of those Robot Wars, <laughs> not not like yeah. one of the good Robot Wars. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't like Hypno Disc level or or, um, or Razor. Mm. Do you remember that one that was just a big ball and they covered it in fur? Yeah, I do. That, that actually popped into my head when you said about one of the shit ones. And they just kept bringing it back every year because it was funny to watch it set on fire. Yeah, because all they do is they have that one that just shot fire and just burn the shit out of it. And they'd be like, well, why? Why are you bringing it? Just save your money on carpet, mate. Don't fucking bother next year. That was fun. What was it called? Dotsteer or something like that. Fuzzball or some shit. <laughs> <laughs> next week on the Robot Wars pod. <laughs> um, I hope that the person who made that, who was on Robot Wars, listens to this show, and they're now really angry, screaming at their iPhone or, or, or whatever device they listen to, screaming the name of their little furry fuzzball robot. Because we're whatever, getting... it was, whatever it was, I got a kick out of seeing it back every year. It was like yeah. the underdog. It was like you know, you just wanted it to do well, and it never did. I bet now that bloke is in a bed set on his own because his, his wife and kids have left him because he kept trying to get back on Robot Wars every year. And he's just sat in front of a shitty old TV watching the same VHS tape. Let's be honest, it would be a VHS tape. The same VHS tape of his episodes on Robot Wars. I, I still have a Robot Wars VHS double. Right. Yeah, but with the round robot next to him and he's just welded an ashtray on top of it. And that's its purpose now. And he just sits there in his pants, just Aww. smoking, watching the reruns, <laughs> thinking of a better time in his life, surrounded by empty bottles of white lightning. <laughs> That's the saddest I've been since I watched Iron Claw at the weekend. <laughs> oh, we're not doing a very good job of talking, Doctor. I don't think we should record midweek. It doesn't work. <laughs> the, the, the silly's coming out a little bit for one of us, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Me. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty much. I'm pretty much on a level here. I'm. Uh, <laughs> I'm um, doing all right. So those are the wobbly robots. Okay, we're not big fans of those. Glitz and Dibber. Nice. Glitz is a prick. Yes, but I think he's supposed to be, isn't he? He's supposed oh, yeah. to be a slimy piece of shit, but isn't he? He's a prick, but he commits the sin of being a boring prick mm. and that doesn't actually follow through with much. He's he's like a less scrupulous intergalactic Dell boy. Yeah, okay, I can get that. He's, I, he's, there, he's there for the heist. He, he obviously has some aptitude, but it's just a... There's a difference between, well, do you know, I'll put it in wrestling terms, it's X-Packing. It's go away. There's villains you love to boo, and there's villains you love to see get the comeuppance. Yeah. And then there's villains that you just wish would fuck off. Yeah. And I just wish Glitz would fuck off. Don't get me wrong, the actor, the actor did a fantastic job learning all those lines and getting it, you know, getting it cock on, and the delivery was good and all of that, but the, the writing really did him no favours. Because he's like, oh, well, no. <laughs> Shut up, dear. Let me talk to the nice lady. <laughs> oh, just shut up, you bellend. He's the type of bloke, in a, if, if, he, if he sat next to you in a pub, you'd get up and leave. After five minutes. Would that make Dibber Rodney, then? No, because he's a bit smarter than Rodney. Fair point. Because yeah, Dibber's just there to be the muscle and be a bit violent. There was one moment, to be honest... Because we get effectively everyone gets captured. Okay, so so we'll run very 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 quickly through episode one. The uh, the doctor arrives on this planet. He sees an entranceway, um, like an, an abandoned uh, doorway, and so on. Everyone splits up, and then everyone gets captured straight away. Okay. Perry's captured right away. Um, Dibber and Glitz are with the primitives. Um, the doctor is captured and put into the sci-fi corridor place. Uh, when we see Perry, she is ended up put in a cell with Dibber and Glitz. And yeah. Dibber, sorry, Glitz is very much a case of, oh, hello, young lady. Oh, I don't mind being in here now. Well, ha, ha, and all that sort of nonsense. It's Vicar Eve rubbing his thighs. Yeah, yeah. That's at the start of part two. The part one ends with the doctor getting stoned. Not uh-huh. in that way. He's having, he's having stones thrown at him to kill him. Yes. But then the footage stops and it cuts back to the Valyard in the court, basically being incredibly indignant at the Doctor enjoying his activities and makes it a full full trial with the death penalty on the line. Not a bad um, cliffhanger. I don't think. I'll tell you what, that's something that does save this story for me. Uh, again, we'll, we'll always cover our, our final thoughts and our summarisation of it at the end anyway, but I don't think this is awful, awful. But at the same time, some of the highlights then is probably a better way of wording it. Are the cliffhangers to the episodes. Mm. Because this first one, like you said, the Valyard there going, I want an investigation, turn to trial, and the, you know, it, this trial, if he's found guilty, will you know, he will be killed and, and all that sort of stuff. That, that. <laughs> and what preceded it wasn't great though with the doctor getting um stoned by it just puts his brolly up yeah and he's hit by one which knocks him out and he does the whole 
oh, stunned for a second, slow-mo fall. But as he's doing the slow-mo fall, two more literally lamp him straight in the mush. <laughs> and he doesn't react at all to them. Now, I know he's supposed to be unconscious already, but it made it look a little bit shit, didn't it? Yeah, a bit of a no-sell, wasn't it? Um, yeah, it, it, that bit was, yeah, you're right. It, it was it was a good cliffhanger immediately preceded by some utter shit. Mm. Um, back with the savages then I keep calling them savages that's not the right term is villagers villagers there we go that's better um, back with the villagers then uh, Perry is talking to Joan Sims and she has a little mental slip back to her days on the carry on films and says to Perry that the women must be shared about which apparently is yeah. you know, there's not many women to go around and I'm thinking okay look, this is a bit awkward but I suppose for the mm-hmm. nature of the story if they've got a limited number of, in the population, it does kind of make sense, but it's still but again, a bit we didn't uncomfortable. Need to know. We nah. didn't, it, it was an unnecessary plot point. And, and I think <laughs> Perry... <laughs> Do we really need to know about, about these villagers' gangbangs? Yeah. <laughs> I think Perry could have been a bit more like, I don't think so, Lev, rather than just, oh, my God, and then goes off to see Glitz, and she's like, oh, yeah, we do that back where I'm from, but people take it in turns there. And it's like, hang on a sec, Perry. I think you should be a little... I think should be no, no, I'm not saying, like, you know, there's a queue forming out of the tent. Who would tent are you, Posh? <laughs> well, I'm just, I'm just thinking of the villagers, that's all, you know, in the tents, isn't it? Perhaps they can have one of those ticker tape things like the old, the old time butchers, old polite number, what number are you? I'm 46. Oh, great. I'm 22. I'm next. Whatever. Do you know what I mean? I'm, si- but- I'm 69. Brilliant. <laughs> um, Gee, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really odd reaction where Perry's told effectively, we're going to make you have several husbands because they need more villagers. Um, and it's just like, oh, okay, shit. It's like, yeah. mm, may, no, maybe try and protest. Yeah, but she was she took it quite well, didn't she? I mean, the 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 the, the idea, not you know the <laughs> to stop it. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to keep doing that this episode. Just because I stop talking. Maybe, uh, maybe. Um, to be honest, I'm sidetracked about whether to cut out the Hogan black people thing from earlier, but I've now said that. I, bit, I, I, probably can't, but. I, I think you need to just cut, yeah, both of them. I think what you just said and what I'm saying now, just to be on the safe side. Maybe. Um, there is a good moment here, though. I enjoyed this when the Doctor meets the Immortal, and we have those two odd fellas, the young lads that have been selected, going through his pockets, and. That I enjoyed because of the stuff they were taking out of his pockets. There was a teddy bear. There was a funny little mask. There was the jelly babies, of course. Yeah. Uh, there was a torch. And I love it whenever the doctor empties his pockets or somebody goes through his kit and there's just weird, random stuff. That I enjoy. Yeah, but it kind of reminds me of um, of Jim Carrey in the mask when the cops are going through his pockets and it's like rubber chicken, mouse trap, picture of the detective's wife. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, I, I got a bit of a kick out of that. Um, but again, they're called Tandril and Humka, uh, yeah. the two lads, and it's just they're 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 very quickly boring and tedious. The most interesting thing about them is the Doctor getting their names wrong all the time. And that I enjoyed when he calls them humbug and handbag and stuff like that. That was yeah, that's that's fairly amusing. Uh, Towards the end oh, of episode sorry. two. Sorry, no, go on. I was just going to say, um, 
Oh, what was her face? Um, out of the Carry On films. What was her name? John again? Sims. John Sims actually has a really good line in this episode as well because uh, Glitz gets brought before and he's trying to turn on the charm and, you know, saying he's, he says, I've got away with all the women and shit like that. And he, 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 he he's immediately cut off when John Sims just goes, be silent, fat one. <laughs> yeah. It's like, ah, sit down, dickhead. <laughs> Yeah. She wasn't even that old. I mean, she was early fifties, maybe when they when they filmed this. Yeah, like potentially. But I mean, obviously older than her carry on days. But you know, yeah, it is what it is. Um, towards the end of episode two, then we do get the reveal that Meridine is helping people leave. He explains that there is no fire on the surface anymore. Mm. People can live there, and he has been sneaking people out. And he wants the doctor who has escaped by stunning um, Hamburg, Humbug, and the immortal. Oh, that made me laugh. Actually, yeah, that, that was pretty good. Because yeah. he's asking about the rationing water because it's raining buckets up top. And then Humbug and Hamburg sort of look at each other like, what? Um, and then Drathro reveals that he's operating purely logically, like we said before. And he says, hold this for me, hold this for me, and electrocute and run away. Yeah, that was, that was class. That was really good. Murdine yeah. um, is helping me believe. Now, again, it's a classic Who trope, I suppose, in that between the two groups in various stories, there's somebody working with the other side or somebody who has their head turned by the freedom that yeah. the other side offers. It's a standard thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, I like the fact that Muradine was chosen for that role because he is high up rather than just a random soldier or random guard or whatever. But... Yeah. We're talking halfway through episode two. They've not made me care enough about the guy as a bad guy for this to hit me as a big enough swerve here. And then when they do make him uh, effectively reveal his true self and he's helping people escape, he's still coming across like this bland uh, motorcycle helmet wearing uh, Nazi, effectively. And he's still incredibly unlikable, even when he's helping people. Bike Nazi. Bike Nazi. Um, I just think that it, it just didn't it didn't tick all the boxes for me, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it, it falls a bit flat. Um, I thought it was a good reveal. It wasn't a great reveal. For me, it was just sort of, oh, okay, that's what's been going on. That, that, that is adequate. That, <laughs> that is story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, we'll come to it shortly because it's, the, it's kind of the cliffhanger to part three where it could have been done a bit better. But anyway, the... The cliffhanger to part two. Effectively, we have a few different things going on. We have what the the villagers. I know you said savages again. Then the villagers, <laughs> the randies, the randies. Yeah, they refer to this this thing on the outside as a totem pole. Um, this is actually a machine that processes light and turns it into dark light, which powers the immortal. Oh, there's so that is sorry, we're told that so many times. Hmm. This is a black light converter. This is a black light converter. This is a black light. We know. Was black light a big thing then in the mid eighties? Were they really pushing that phrase to try and make it sort of relevant in present in that era's present day? Maybe I don't know. I don't know. I'm there. No, I was only five. <laughs> you weren't big into the latest scientific thoughts and theories. I wasn't, mate. No, um, <laughs> not until I was six. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so we have the, we have what they refer to as the totem pole. Um, 
this apparently is what attracted the fireball that caused the problems in the first place 500 years ago. It's going to attract another one. Glitz wants to destroy it and has a plan to do so. Yeah, effectively, it, it, Glitz and Dipper want to destroy it to take the draft row offline to then get whatever they've been sent to retrieve, which we yes. find out later is, is scientific plans and and you know thoughts and theories and strategies and, and what have you. Mm. But the Doctor needs to shut it down or fix it to free the people down there, as well as take Drathor offline. And they're kind of at cross-purposes that way. And the villagers think it's a totem and a symbol of the gods and don't want anybody anywhere near it, even though it's malfunctioning and going to cause another cause a massive explosion that could potentially wipe out the galaxy or even the universe. Yeah. So from that aspect, okay, they tell us what it is far too often, but from that aspect, the fact that you've got the three different groups or three different parties that, that, that we ran through earlier on, Dan, all having a different motivation for this um, totem pole, or I'll refer to it as, I suppose, that does kind of pique my interest a little bit because everyone's got their own different thoughts and motivation upon it and yep. reasons for wanting it kept up or destroyed or just shut down or whatever. That I thought was quite well done. It's a very good idea in concept. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Didn't quite land for me in practice just for the sheer amount of time that everybody, that somebody had to explain their thoughts on it to everybody else. Yeah. We see. Glitz explained to Joan Sims. We see the Doctor explain to Glitz and the Doctor explains to Joan Sims and then Joan Sims explains to the both of them. And it goes on that little sort of merry that little sort of verbal merry-go-round. Mm. And it ultimately gets nowhere because Joan Sims just says, No, totem. Powers, gods. Mm, yes. Mm. Yeah, she's not having none of it, is she? She's taking no shit. Which, you know yeah. what? Fair enough. But still, makes for a bit of a pain in the ass during the episode. Yeah, fair point. Um, part two cliffhanger again. I think is uh, on, on a on a drama level. I suppose it's kind of still pretty decent. It's still a bit of a high spot for me. The, the Doctor has escaped uh, Tweedledum and Tweedledummer and and the evil Hogan racist robot, and is running away. They bump back into Perry and Glitz and Dibber, who have escaped. But then as they're trying to come out of the uh, the underground, out of the tunnel, the primitives with spears are, cha- are coming after them and, and uh, sort of blocking their escape on the surface. So they have to turn around and go back into the, well, the subway entrance, I guess it would be. And they are greeted by the, the, the aforementioned Wobblebot, the the, the yep. sort of shaky you know robot there. So they're stuck between the Wobblebot and the villagers, and the Doctor's just like, this might be where it ends, and that is where the episode ends. And I thought that was quite good, because it is a case of they've got nowhere to go. What happens next? Yeah, It's a good cliffhanger, isn't it? Stuck between a rock and a hard place, and again, does just enough to make me want to see what happens next. Mm. Yes. So like, I've, we've got, It's taken a while to get there, and a lot of yapping, and a lot of back and forth and an exposition and whatnot, but we're at a point where I'm saying, okay, how's the Doctor going to get out of this one? And it's done enough with the with the Merdine stuff and Balazar and, and whatnot. And yeah, it's it's going to be a theme of this where I'm saying it's done enough to keep my interest. Okay, interesting, because that's going to be a few questions I have for you along those lines shortly. Uh, part three begins 
with Balazar going, oh my God, that's my mate. Now, bear in mind, Balazar has a proper alien style um, name, I guess. Balazar, we got, what was the mm. other guy's name? Mer- Merton or whatever it was. Merton, Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, oh, that's my mate. Broken Tooth. What the fuck? If I was Broken Tooth, I'd be pissed. I'd be like, look, mate, you know, I don't call you big nose, do I? Or long neck or pale skin. <laughs> Come on. Oh, what, what, did the, what did the doctor call Balazar later on? He called him... Called him a swap, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, because Balazar knows Broken Teeth, uh, it's, it's funny, though, the reveal. It's like, I know him. I know that <laughs> savage. Hi, that's, that's Broken Teeth. And they almost have to stand there and go, oh, yeah. You know, it's kind of... <laughs> that was quite funny. Oh, but because shit, of this, yeah. it is a bit shit. Because of this, Broken Teeth shoots the wobble bot and it blows up. Or, or you know, part of it blows up anyway. So that's kind of that cliffhanger, you know, avoided or, or escaped from relatively straightforward, which I don't mind. It's swiftly it does, dealt with. Yeah. yeah, it does the job. It does the job. Um, they all head back to the village then, effectively as prisoners again. So we're entering war games territory yeah. where people are getting <laughs> captured, escaping and captured again. Relatively that's, often. that's why it wound me up. That's part of what wound me up about this episode. Capture, escape, recapture, escape, recapture. Okay. Okay. See, I can see a problem with it here, but I fucking love the war games, so I refuse to have bad said about that. <laughs> For all the bad words I've said about it, please consult our earlier episode. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this is where the Doctor meets Joan Sims, and he goes, hey, you were in carry-on camping, I swear. But then she goes, no, I am my <laughs> queen of the villagers, and Broken Tooth is my footstool here and he's going to shoot you or whatever it is and he is talk, trying to negotiate with the the leader here uh joan sims to leave effectively and he explains i need to go and sort this out or there's gonna be a big explosion she's saying well your friends here said something else and the doctor's like i don't know these two fellas they're nothing to do with me pointing at glitz yeah. and diver he's like i want nothing to do with them either they can stay here i'm buggering off with perry and i thought that's a little bit undoctor like in a way yeah, but also Glitz and Dibber and Dickhead, so bollocks to them. Yeah, fair point. Yeah. At this point, so one thing I will say about it is as well, we did have, so on occasion when they do cut back to the courtroom, they do, uh, Colin Baker does get some decent one-liners in there. Mm. Yes. You know, or, or like little barbs, because at one point it cuts back and then the judge is asking, uh, Judge Bisto is asking if all this is necessary. Because uh, I, I find primitive violence distressing, and Colin Baker just says, "So do I, ma'am." Especially when I'm on the receiving end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he keeps he keeps changing up the val- the Valyard's name as well, doesn't he? Calling calling him the Scrapyard, the Boneyard, and all of that. Yeah, that's class. I enjoy that. Colin Baker, I think, in the courtyard, sorry, courtyard. Well, listen to me, courtroom. courtroom scenes. I think it's fantastic. Oh, I think he's kissing vinegar and trying absolutely. to defend himself. Yeah, yeah he's brilliant. So good, so good. Um, meanwhile, whilst this is going on, the Wobblebot has become uh, back online. It's, it's active again, and it's looking at what once was an escalator and, and thinking, how the fuck am I going to get out of there? Sadly, we don't see the Wobblebot attempt it. It's just next time we see it on the surface. Um, that would have been brilliant, wouldn't it? I would have watched that. If that was <laughs> DP Extra or something, that would have been great. Um, the, we're all in the cell then. You know, Dibber, Glitz, Perry, and the Doctor. And then the Wobblebot has tracked them down to the cell and smashes through the wall, 
which oh, I this was so bad it was brilliant the wall I'm guessing is made of the same material as the stones that hit Colin Baker in the face earlier on yeah because they just fall like they're made of nothing don't they the, f- the world's finest styrofoam mm, there we go there we go I absolutely loved it it was it was great but when when we see through the robot's eyes which I thought was a very good camera shot to be honest because that's yeah. how Drathro and uh, Humbug and Handbag are uh, sort of viewing the world the the two lads sort of cemented themselves as unlikable when they're looking at all this greenery that they've never seen before. I don't know what it supports primitive life. And they conclude that because primitive life is unnecessary, therefore all the greenery is unnecessary as well. Yeah. And they're just like, you little pricks. No concept of life outside your own. And But then they get outside and they're just like, ooh, fresh air, lovely. Mm. Well, yeah. Can't, can't I, I imagine. The greenery, you pair of twats. Exactly. I imagine fresh air does smell fantastic because all they've been doing is smelling the bigger mortal's sweaty crotch for the last god knows how many years, haven't they? It's been stuck in sweat. Well, I, I, he looks sweaty to me, mate. As far as robots go, that's a sweaty bot, I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, they're doing because they're effectively sealed on the ground, is they've been breathing their own recycled farts all their lives. <laughs> yeah, was that you? I don't know. Was that me? I can't tell. It's all the same now. Um, <laughs> Uh, that, that, that one that one smells like the the goop that we had for lunch <laughs> oh my god oh dear um when the wobble bot arrives and smashes through the the wall uh, first of all I mean, like you said about the, the wall breaking and so on i can imagine the conversation with the production team being something along the lines of we need the the incredibly wobbly unstable robot to smash through a, a big impressive wall here can we build it but weaken certain spots and you know perhaps we'll get this material or that material and then the bbc and the production team turning back around and going you spent eight grand on a fucking red spaceship mate you're having fucking polystyrene and you're liking it that's what you're doing <laughs> you know? and they smash through that right? <laughs> uh, it takes the doctor it carries the doctor off yeah uh, captured again yeah, captured again. But no running away that time because they were in a cell. So there's no way for them to run, I suppose. But yeah. we're then back in the courtroom and we find out that the TARDIS might have been bugged because they're seeing things on the Matrix that the Vanyard has to explain that the others don't necessarily argue with, but they're a little bit like, well, is that correct? We don't know. Now, I, I'm assuming this is, well, I'm hoping this sort of thing is going to come back up later in the trial. There's a strong chance it won't, but I'm, I'm hoping it does. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those where they've decided to put it in because the plot needs it. Mm. So why are we being shown this? I wasn't even there for that. I don't know. Well, it picks up the the sights and the memories of, of people around it. It's like, okay, that's even yeah. better. Yeah, that is a bit, isn't it? So effectively, they could be watching whatever Perry's doing. Yes. And effectively, they could have been watching whatever Nissa and Tegan have been doing. Yes. I'd buy those DVDs. Stop talking, Si. <laughs> anyway, um, the... <laughs> <laughs> I need to change my shifts, man. I can't be doing this. I try, I try to keep it together. <laughs> um... The primitives are shooting now at the Wobblebot as it's carrying the Doctor. Perry quite rightfully points out that they're going to hit the Doctor. Um, whilst all this is going on, Joan Sims assumes the Immortal is dead 
Because, oh no, they shoot the wobble bottle and it explodes, and she thinks that's the immortal, doesn't she? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Not, um, not exactly 100% right there. No. No. So they plan to attack now because they think the Wobblebot was the immortal and it's been killed. Um, this bit I liked because the Doctor is unconscious after being smashed about through polystyrene walls and shot at and whatnot. The Doctor finally comes round and calls Perry Sarah Jane. And it's completely unnecessary, not linked to anything other than the fact he was a bit bleary-eyed and whatever. But I loved that. That was so cool. Yeah, he's had a, he's had a, ba- a bash on the noggin. Yeah. And it's just taking him out of it pretty quickly. That, that was a nice little touch. I did like that. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, that was good. Um, we then get to the villagers uh, in the castle uh, going through the underground trying to get to, to where they... They're just, they're just running around like dickheads. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, we then fact, cut sorry, this is what I was talking about. Sorry, this is what I was talking about. Because this is where you've got Balazar and Broken Tooth. And Broken Tooth yes. like, I remember these corridors from my childhood. And he's there saying, well, I remember the corridors. I don't remember which way they went. And it happens with Humbug and Handbag later on, where they're just like, I remember these from before we were, uh, you know, before we got locked in a room. So, but I can't remember which way is to the surface. And they're like, for fuck's sake. Mm. Now they're recycling jokes as well. But that's when they have the little argument about which way is which. And Balazar has not been out of there long. He should remember. It's been less than a day. Yeah. And yeah, that's very true. I didn't even they're, think they're, of that. They're, they're, You're just spot on with that. They have this silly little thing where, and then it's the big rallying speech from Johnson. It's just like, okay, that was to kill what? Fifteen seconds, thirty seconds. Is that where? Is that where she punches the air as well for no yeah, reason whatsoever? Yeah, and then they carry on the way they were going, mm. which was the way Balazar had left there a couple of hours ago, wanted to go. And all the all the while, we've got more important things going on because the black light system is going to go. It's going to blow up. And the doctor needs to find out a way to sort it. It's just Oh my god. I totally forgot about the whole black light shit whilst we were talking. Yeah, and, and this and Glitz and Dimmer have pissed off to go get artillery to shoot up the villagers. Uh, we've had the whole thing with Grell um tracking Murdine because he was listening to him and he's he's confronting him about not culling people and setting people free. Mm. Ah, I'll tell you what though. That leads to the cliffhanger in a moment, which I thought was was pretty good. We'll come to that in just a sec. Yeah. But we do have another courtroom scene where some, like yeah, some evidence is missing, isn't it? Something has been removed. Yeah. And that's yeah, interesting. So all what's going on? It's missing speech, isn't it? Um, mm. And they're just like, and uh, the doctor basically takes the opportunity. He's not going to object. He's going to give the Valyard enough rope to hang himself. Yes. Oh no! The, the speech is later on, isn't it? This is something yes. else. Yeah, the speech is in episode four when when Glitz is effectively beeped, isn't he? Yeah, that's in episode four. This is different. Is that's missing. Yeah, there's another pit bit that's oh, gone. Yeah, it just cuts out, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So what's going deemed, on? Deemed not in the public interest, and and uh, Judge Bister said, "Well, I'm not exactly the public, mate." Mm. So what are you playing? Yeah. Yeah, not in the public interest. My word, dodgy, dodgy Valyard. Fight that's, the system. That's, oh, mate, that's a that's such that's such a legal term. Not, I won't go into the specifics, but I did a journalism degree, and in the media law module, so much of it was around what is and isn't in the public interest, mm-hmm. and what can't, can't be reported. Oh, god. 
Aliens. Yeah, alien, aliens would be, I think. Yeah. But anyway, back to this show. Anyway, um, <laughs> I just randomly shot aliens. Um, we, <laughs> we have. We do that in the street. You did that in Birmingham. We got looked at from. Yeah, very true. Uh, Murdine here then shouts, stop, you know, whatever, in the corridor, pulls his gun and, and starts firing at the doctor. And that's the cliffhanger. And it kind of comes out of nowhere. But I suppose in the hectic, everyone running about, shouting, punching the air and nonsense, it kind of has to come out of nowhere. You can't build to it too much. There's too many moving parts. But that is the cliffhanger to part three. And again, I thought that was done really well. Yeah, pretty good one. Because we've seen Mad- uh, Madrine or Madine having the conversation with Grell. Has he come round back round? Has he, has he gone back to the dark side? You know what's going on. So yeah, that was that was done very again another good cliffhanger as we said. Mm, yeah. Um, part four begins with Murdine shooting a guard instead of the Doctor. It was Grell. So, yeah, yeah. Very. There you go. So very easily dealt with, but it still makes perfect sense. It's not a case of like you see in um i think it's Dalek's master plan where there's a cliffhanger where the, the doctor at one point says oh what are we gonna do we can't go outside because it's toxic out there everyone will die and then the very next episode starts with doctor saying to ian go outside my boy you know it, <laughs> it's doubt obviously that was done because the right there was two different writers and they were leaving each other difficult cliffhangers to get out of but that's a story we'll cover when we when we cover Dalek's master plan but here you don't get none of that real quick resolve on with the story brilliantly done yeah, yeah. For, for all my uh, sort of misgivings and annoyances with this serial, uh, I can't fault the the cliffhangers again. Did enough to keep me invested, and it, it hooked me right in when I started episode four. I was like, oh, great, brilliant. You know, a bit of action, but then <laughs> Medine kills Grell, mm-hmm. and as he's as he's laying there dying, he's still trying to get Grell on side, mm. which. I suppose I can understand really because you know they live together, work together, and whatnot. Initially, I thought it was a bit odd, but when I when I gave it a, sort of a more than a second thought, I was like, yeah, actually, that's a pretty normal thing to do. To right, my issue is the timing of it all. Again, it's now, very quick. The yeah, the I suppose the the swerve, the reveal, whatever it may you want to refer to it as with Madrine early in the story came too quickly because I didn't care about him as a bad guy character. Mm. So when it was revealed that he's actually a good guy character, the surprise wasn't there for me to be arsed about, I guess. Here, we have a similar situation for me because he's shot the guy already and that's when we get the whole, oh, but he's my mate, I've known him for years, he's this, that, the other, and so on. Or the reveal of their history, yeah, I guess. Yeah, you're left to fill in the blanks for yourself, which is great. If that had been done episode one you see him I mean there's so much time wasted in this story with as you said Dan running around or pointless conversations they could have had a literally a, a five second convo talking about back in the academy days and then in episode two a five minute convo about going around each other's house for dinner and meeting the kids or whatever just, well, just treat it treat it like um, not the chancellor the oh it was the slimy bugger in the Tom Baker serial um, oh the reporter no, the is a member of the government. It was in Invasion of Time, the one who, who sort of bent over backwards for the Sontarans. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah, treat treat Grill like that character, like someone who's very sneaky, very suspicious. But you know, uh, but 
Madrine or Merdine's his you know his superior, so he's he's still very much like, oh yes sir, yes sir. Mm. Yeah, yeah, but they're trying to show this long-term friendship even away from their their roles working for the yeah, immortal. Yeah, there, so, there were so many better ways of doing it. Yeah, we're getting all the emotion after he shot him. Can you imagine if we'd had the three episodes, and I suppose when it aired in the 80s, three weeks' worth of just short little conversations showing their their, their friendship, their, their camaraderie, and so on throughout the years. And then at the very beginning of episode four, you think the Doctor's been shot, but he's not. He's sacrificed his mate to save the Doctor. Yeah. There's so much gravitas in that compared to what we got. It's just... I just don't think it's done very well. No, it's not. And it's another annoyance in this in this serial. It's They've wanted the huge payoff, but don't put none of the effort in. Mm, there you go. You're spot on, mate. Yeah, you're spot on. Um something that annoyed the piss out of me and it's something that I get quite frustrated with with not just Doctor Who television in general uh, we have Joan Sims here leading her army into the Immortals computer room I guess you might call it as it is control it's station. in a sanctum yeah okay and they're storming in now bear in mind obviously she thinks the Immortal is dead so I suppose on one aspect I get it but she's storming in looking at her own fucking feet and when she does this <laughs> she's literally then what a yard from this nine foot tall massive fucking robot and looks up and goes oh my god you're not dead after all what the hell what are we gonna do about this it's like come on you've just you've opened those massive doors and it stood there it's not even still not that that's an excuse but it's, it's not even still it's moving about just spinning its stupid little arms and that and you're looking in that direction but you decided to stare at the floor instead and suddenly look up and go, oh, no. Oh, this is nice. This is very nice, Tarling. Oh, shit. Oh, it was so bad. It really made <laughs> so, me angry. Did you did you, did you you spot the bit that gave me a lot of, a lot of joy? It was when uh, they got to the doors and someone says, they're Iron Katrika. They will not yield as they're leaning on them. The set's wobbling. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I adored that bit. Oh. Just It was so funny. But yeah, then they got the stupid little thing in. And then it... It kind of re- not redeems itself, but it gives you some of the stuff that just goes, "Oh Jesus!" When Katrika, uh, sorry, Drathro grabs Katrika by the throat and effectively just burns her. Oh my God, that was so and, good! And Broken Tooth grabs Drathro's arm and burns as well. The special effects on that for a split, just for a few seconds, were just like, "Oh, wow, okay, that's graphic." That was obviously, you know, for Saturday afternoon telly in the eighties, it was graphic. Yeah, it was. It really was. I, I really enjoyed that. that yeah, was... I, didn't, I didn't mind that. Yeah. The only way it could have been any better was if the immortal robot was doing the Sid James laugh from the Carry On films as he was frying Joan Sims. <laughs> as he's actor, <laughs> that'd been brilliant. You know, <laughs> you know somewhere, you know somewhere, there's an outtake of that, don't you? Yeah, I can, I'll be... tell you what. I've got to a point with my editing and that I could probably make that. I might do that tonight. Because I'm going to be up till four in the morning anyway. I've been working nights. <laughs> <laughs> using, gonna... using your time off through the night with no family productive side, watch this. <laughs> Bar- Barbara Windsor's knock. Johnson getting electrocuted by a robot cackling. <laughs> Barbara Windsor's knocks again. <laughs> oh, tune into our socials to catch that later in the week. Um... <laughs> Carry on tardising. <laughs> uh, um, here we go back to the courtroom. And this is another moment where the Doctor just rips the Valyard and Colin Baker is fan-bloody-tastic. Best speech in the whole thing. 
Oh, my word. I'll tell you what makes it as well. It's not just the delivery, because I imagine you've got parts of it written down, Dan, haven't you? So we'll come to that in a second. Um, if you haven't, I've built that up, and I'm not going to cut it out. I don't give I've a got shit. a little bit. I've got a little bit. Okay. Right. But what makes it is, Baker does a couple of things here that I don't know if are intentional or just force of habit or just the way he does it. He sits up in his chair to make himself almost seem bigger, and his jaw comes out, and his eyes change. His eyes go really stern and starey mm. and like i am in charge here and at that moment you look at him and you think that is that's john pertwee that that's tom baker and in later years that, that's matt smith that's yeah. eccleston there's a load of eccleston yeah. and i'm thinking that is the doctor right there yeah because it it cuts back and he's quite sort of blase about it. So, no, well, you know my, uh, oh might not look like I'm in a rush, but my languid gait is, is quicker than it looks. And then, you know, just like, so, you know, picking himself up, which is just pretty funny. Yeah. And Judge Bistos didn't interrupt to commend his athleticism. <laughs> Don't think Bistos. Well, I'd, I'd gratefully accept the compliment, blah, blah. And then he just switches and he starts calling the trial a farce and basically shits on every single aspect of the Valyard's case. And then he said, oh, I suggest you change your title to Knacker's Yard, as your argument is as tired and worn out as the poor unfortunate creatures that end up there. And he, But that's the, the summation of about two minutes worth of solid ranting. It's fantastic. Oh, it's I the wish, best I part wish of I'd the transcribed it. I wish I'd transcribed it, but I'll be honest, by the time this came out, I was still ill, and it was getting late, and I just couldn't yes. be bothered. Yeah, but then the Valyard as well... The, it's a weird thing. I know I've bemoaned all the talky bits, but when it gets to this point, the sort of the back and forth between the Doctor and the Valyard is really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the Valyard saying he takes no offence at the Doctor's immature outburst. And then the Doctor's off again saying saving lives is neither immature nor a crime. And the Valyard saying your crime was being there and the immaturity was not realising that he'd broken a cardinal law. And then they're both just told to sit the fuck down. Mm. Yeah, let's carry it's so on watching good. the evidence. That, yeah, that is good. It's, it, yeah, I mean, we've seen it in quite a lot of. It's things for like clip shows and things like that. It's, it's a bit of a trope where you're coming back to, you know, coming back to people who are observing the same story that we're observing. But this is it done very well in this particular bit. There's some parts where it comes back and we're just there to hear the doctor call him scrapyard or boneyard, like I said before, and it's it's just those those silly little quips that. It, it at least feels like when they're doing that that it's building to something. Mm. When it's when it's in the story and it's and they're being all blabbery and verbose, it feels like killing time. And there's an element of that in the, in the in the Time Lord court bits as well. But as it's getting more and more heated as it goes on, that's when I'm like, okay, I'm I'm, I'm invested in that bit, but I'd quite like to get there a little bit quicker. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, I get you. Um, we then come to well before we get to glitz being censored we get a couple of shots of the courtroom as this is going on from a slightly different angle and we can see uh bear in mind this is time lord um this is gallifrey this is well not gallifrey this is a ship sorry that is gallifrey and, and the time lords got all their pomp and certain majesty and all their, their their gangs and their posh talking and all that and the vanyard's doing all this with a couple of scraps of paper and a biro on his desk that i loved <laughs> you know it's like no I will use paper and pen it reminds me when I make my notes for chain wrestling and Maxi <laughs> Moxman 
And it's like, no, <laughs> don't use the technology. It's not you. <laughs> so they're wanting to be a time lord so very, very badly. There we go. Uh, and Glitz is censored here. He is talking to Dimmer about something. But then when he gets to the point of the conversation, it's quite heavily beeped. We're told mm. that they're going to play it again because that shouldn't be happening. And even then, still a small part of it is beeped. But there seems to be a reference to the sleepers finding their way into, and then it's bleeped. And it seems like he says the Matrix. Yeah. Yeah, when he's talking about the biggest repository of all of all knowledge. Mm. And you think it, that's the point where you're thinking there's something more to this. Yeah, yeah. Um, whilst this is going on, the Doctor is talking to the Immortal. Uh, and they're having a debate back and forth about a lot of debate. A lot, yeah, my word. Because we go away to see uh, that Meridine has been ordered to kill the villagers on the outside of the door. Come back, and the Doctor and, and the Immortal are still going back and forth, talking about you, know, you were created by humans. You should be serving them. Your life, uh, and the robot asks, "Is my is my existence not as important as an organic?" Then, like, I, it, it's quite so a this provoking is, conversation, isn't it? Let's be honest, but it takes a while. It is, on one, it is on one level, but on the other level, it's kind of nonsensical because they've spent nearly four parts of this presenting Drathro as a purely logical automaton that okay. can't get past its own programming, but now it's using logic and reason potentially and, and pondering the meaning of life and existence and it's just it, it it's either a simple machine acting as best it can which if you go into the sort of the three laws of, of robotics it's that robots are basically must preserve human life and can never knowingly harm a human being. So it's kind of already fucked that up in terms of, of how Drathra has been presented. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's not presented as an AI that's capable of learning and understanding and, and necessarily being self-aware. So it all just kind of, it just struck me as Drathra is now this way because the plot needs it to be. And that happens later on when Glitz and Dibber turn up. And Drathra turns into a fucking dunce because the plot needed him to... Oh, yeah. Well, we're going to get to that very quickly, I feel. Um, the, the Glitz has a line here that makes me straight away think of the um, Brigadier. He says, five rounds rapid at the door. I don't know if that's an intentional thing, but that was a Brigadier saying from, from back in the time, back in the day. That's cool. Yeah. Um, Perry is being sent to the rationing chute where the food gets sent because they feel that's another way of entering uh, where they need to be. That's where she bumps into Glitz, and they all go down the rationing chute together, and there's a big swirly fan and lots of lasers, and it came across a little bit like a, an episode of the old bo- the old game show Nightmare when we were kids. <laughs> it did a bit, didn't it, yeah. You know? Yeah, I've um, never actually watched Nightmare, but I've seen clips of it. Oh, go check it out on YouTube, man. Bloody good stuff, guys. Really good. I'd happily see that come back. That was a really good show. Oh, it's like Gladiators is the best one to come back. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Gladiators is brilliant. I want to watch it. I've still not seen it yet, though. Oh, the, the one that was just on this weekend, uh, the champion of my local wrestling promotion, uh, Wesley and Serico, was drafted in as a uh, replacement contender. 
I remember you saying, I saw the pictures and bits and bobs. I've seen clips that online and so on, but yeah. yeah okay. Anyway. Anyway. Yeah. Um, this is where, again, we get an example of the polystyrene war. Because to escape the swirling fans and lasers, I mean, I don't quite know what they're... What happens with the rationing food here? That they need lasers to shoot it? Is that how they cook it? I don't. I don't um, see the purpose. I don't get it. It must be, or, or it's just a defence mechanism in case anybody tried to use that as a back door. Ah, there we go. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, okay. it's, it's a weak point in security, so why not have lasers in there? Also, sometimes you just want to heat it up. Good shot, mate. Good shot. It's well, like, what, cons- what concerns me is that it's it's so close to to Drathro's lair, and it can just blast through. Yeah, that's true. Bit convenient. But, yeah, and that's what they do. They shoot a hole in the polystyrene wall. Yeah. They all they all file in, and this is the bit you said about where Glitz kind of convinces the immortal to just pop along with him and he have a lift. Yeah. So it's, we've gone. So sorry, I'm, I'm going to take over it because it fucked me off. Okay, look, you um, carry on. <laughs> Dra- Drathro the immortal. We've gone from all powerful robot. You know, killing humans where needed to, you know, doing what it needs to do in order to maintain this society in the parameters of its programming. We've gone from that to it debating its own existence and arguing that it's that it's fine. Every, all the humans live to serve him without him. Humans have no purpose. So fuck up. A very emotional. <laughs> it, it's a very emotional response. And the doctor's accused of Drafter of having pride and all that, but we're led to believe he's just functional and logical. And now we've got Glitz saying, oh, yeah, we've got blacklight on the ship. We can sort you out. We'll fix you up. It's fine. On you come. So now we're back to being purely rational and having no concept of lying, even though we've been shown that Drathra has concepts of people plotting against him. Mm. It's complete bollocks. It's just so all over the place. Drathra is whatever Drathra needs to be in the moment, and it's crap. It winds me up. Yeah, it is an issue that we've come across in different stories with different characters, but here it's really prominent, isn't it? it, it it's blatant. it's just really blatant and obvious, yeah. And you know, I've said before, you know, sometimes it's quite endearing when something happens because the plot needed it to. It can be a little bit funny. It can be excused in certain things, but not when it's your big villain effectively being made to look a complete dickhead. By another yeah. complete dickhead. And it's the tone of voice as well, isn't it? It's almost like, oh, come with me because I've got, yeah, I'll sort you out. That's it. Don't worry about of course, it. Oh. Of course there's candy in the van. Mm. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. God. Fuck anyway. Anyway. Um, anyway. Anyway. They want these secrets, don't they? That, that, that Glitz keeps referring to the secrets and so on. That the robot has. So he goes and fetches what can only be described as a little handbag. Yeah. It looks like a combination between a handbag and a weird shaped weight that you put on a on a on a, on a bar to do it to lift at the gym. Yeah, it's all of a sudden. It's, a, sorry, it's a giant dairy lee triangle. It is. I feel sorry for for the immortal now in a way because he's just let his guard down. And then people are taking advantage of how naive he is, 
And he's also a little bit camp. He's picking up his little bag and he's he's not doing that robotic clunky walk anymore. He's almost shuffling in a happy little way because he's getting off to go. He's going on a trip almost. But he's being led to his death. And I feel sorry for the dude now. And you shouldn't feel sorry for a villain. No, exactly. Bollocks. Oh, dear me. Glitz and Dib, Glitz and Dib are never get, get, never get any comeuppance. No. Either. No. Yeah. Spoiler alert, because with, uh, with Drathra out of the way, the Doctor, uh, Perry and um, Murdine get it all sorted. They contain the explosion inside the um, inside the immortal sort of inner sanctum, so that all goes boom. And then that just causes Drathra to collapse. Collapses on the, the thing of the secrets and just burns away. Yeah. But then Glitz and Dibber find a piece of something called Silic Tone, which is the hardest metal in the galaxy. So they said, oh, we'll just go find wherever there's more of that and we'll still make a profit. It's it'd be re. Yeah. And all this time, we've kind of just forgotten about that, per- that this is at Earth. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The- Shit. They're in like the London underground. <laughs> this is the mysterious planet. We have had nothing about the planet and the circumstances, how it got there, anything like that, for two and a half parts of this story now. And then we get we get told that it's a couple of light years out of the way, but yeah, it's Earth. It used to be called Earth, and it is, it is actually Perry's planet. And, and Nicola Bryant just gives a great performance at the end because she's not really been a part of it for, for quite a while now. Because the doctor starts trying to give a shit, you know, as he normally does, and she's just too tired and too scared for his bullshit. Mm. Although she does get to have a good one-liner, because um, her or the doctor who like tastes some of the goo that was covering Balazar because he got caught in the explosion in the food room. Why would you do that though? It says, "I think dinner's on him." <laughs> oh yeah, that yeah, that was that, that was like a James Bond cheesy line. That was. It was. It was. Yeah, yeah but it's. Just it, it kind of got lost. The whole mysterious planet thing kind of got lost, and I'm really hoping in the coming episodes that that gets resolved. Well, it after the robot, <laughs> well, I, I don't know. After the robot gets fried, they're walking away. They're heading off back to the TARDIS. The Doctor goes in a certain direction. Perry says no, this way. So they head back the other way, and the Doctor says, "There's two questions left. Um, who moved Earth?" And what was in the little handbag that the robot had? He words it better than I, but, you know. Um, <laughs> and that's when we cut back to the courtroom. And effectively, even though the story we're looking at here, the mysterious planet, has come to an end, the court case is going to continue, of course. The trial is going to continue. Um, yep. The doctor is told, oh, more evidence is here. The worst is yet to come. And the court will demand your life. And all that sort of stuff. Yeah, but the doctor gets a great line in towards the end saying, if the rest of his presentation is as riveting as the first little epic, wake me when it's finished. Yes. In, refer- in reference to the Valyard. Um, it, it's kind of it, it would have I know that, why they had to have the court scene at the end to signify that this is going to be an underlying thing for mm-hmm. however long but it really would have been a good ending just to say who moved earth and what was in that box mm-hmm. and then it ends yeah but again my memories of the trial of a time lord as in the whole story a very patchy, mm. really patchy. I've seen it, but I saw it a long time ago, 
and then I've caught random moments, random bits and bobs and so on in the meantime. So watching this back now for the podcast, it almost feels like, you know the scenario where it almost feels like you're watching it back for the first time ever. Yeah. You're watching it for the first but then the certain moments will pop in your head and go, oh yeah, I remember this actually. Mm-hmm. So I, I can't remember with any real confidence to say what comes up with regards to the court stuff. Fair but enough. I know all of that kind of thing is left there because the last part of the trial, effectively what we get in the trial of the time Lord building up now is, is more of the same. It's more stories with the vineyard. Yeah. yeah. But the last part of the whole season is a bit more based upon what's going on with the vineyard, the doctor uh, and the accusations and so on. There's more based. It's the where big the doctor sort of, is. Yes. Sort of aha moment. Yes. So that I'm assuming there's stuff coming back around then. Um, what follows this one? We'll talk about what we're doing next week in a moment and, and summarize this episode in, in, in a moment, Dan. But what follows this one is uh, a story called Mind Warp. Mm. And Mind Warp um, has a couple of things that are, are noteworthy for, for us, especially as, as fans of the show and, and doing the podcast. Um, we have obviously uh, the Gravy Lady returns, the Valyard returns, Brian Blessed makes a, an appearance <laughs> judge Bista, there you go brian blessed makes an appearance and is, nice. is standard usual stuff uh sill is back in this next story Dan. oh god um and it's also the last appearance of perry in the timeline and and in her original run in the series uh nicola bryant leaves after mind warp that's her oh. her end her end um and if i remember correctly no spoilers obviously we're talking 40 plus or 30 plus year old television here no spoilers but the ending is oh it's pretty big it's it's quite it it should shock you but we'll come to that when we cover the next edition of trial of the time laws which will be in season six of the podcast um but mysterious planet season five of the doctor who pod looking at trial of the time lord what are your final thoughts there mate it's not my favorite as you can probably guess, you know, as I've, as I've gone through it, um, it there was, it, it's weird that a lot went on, but not a lot happened. Okay. So, you know, we're good. It's, you summed it up actually saying about, um, about war games kind of thing. It was captured, released, captured, released, waffle, 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 a few exciting bits and we're done. It, it's one of those where if I've got my generous hat on, I can say that I can see a lot of what we're going for with various characters and, and, and the story, there's some really good ideas in there. And we highlight a few, you know, um, right down to that opening scene, you know, there, there is some good in here, but I don't know. It just, it's not one I'll rush back to. Mm. I'm hoping that by the time I've watched the rest of trial of the time, Lord, I can look back on it a bit more fondly when I understand how it fits in. Okay. It's, it's not, it's not utterly terrible. It's not the worst thing I've ever seen. And it's done enough to make me want to see what goes on next. There we go. In that essence, it's done its job. I want to know what happens next between the docks and the Valyard. I want to know what happened with earth. I couldn't give a shit about a single character that was on Ravelox really mm. apart from the doctor and perry well I, I, I suppose it's not really a spoiler because it, it does you know 
is like a 40, 50 year old television, whatever. But Glitz does return. But I don't think he returns uh, in Trial of a Time Lord. Oh, okay. I don't think Strange. he does. Like, I think he returns in McCoy's era. Well, it'd be hard for him to return uh, before that. Well, yeah, he's of course. Not, he's, <laughs> definitely travel, mate. he's definitely not been in any other room. Uh, any new who. If my memory serves me right, and it probably does not, I think Glitz returns when we meet Ace. All right. I think. Because Ace is a waitress in some sort of space cafe, and Glitz is in there. If my memory serves me correctly. But there's probably hundreds, thousands, well, thousands, not many people fucking listen, but there's probably hundreds of Doctor Who fans screaming now at their podcast players saying, don't be so stupid, you fucking Gloucester idiot. That's not right. But that's how I remember it anyway. Um, <laughs> I agree with a lot of what you said. I think that this kept me hooked enough to keep watching without ever making me go, holy shit, I have to keep watching, if that makes sense. Yeah. It was... I suppose the the cliffhangers worked well. They did their purpose because it made me want to press play the next episode. Totally forgetting what's happened in the previous 23, 24 minutes or whatever. Mm. Um... I think the character work and the world building they put in, considering how much time they had, didn't hit the target. They could have done a lot more to make us care about the the, the more external characters of the story, not just the Doctor and Perry and a few others. Uh, you know, broken teeth and all that sort of stuff. There could have been a lot more done to make us care about those. I think the robots were shite. I'm not going to lie. They were terrible. <laughs> but at the same time, it's 86, money, and they blew a lot of cash at the, in the opening was, scene, which was fucking fantastic. I was going to say, the, a janky robot or two, and, you know, and a bit of set wobble, that's endearing to me. Mm, that's yeah. part of what makes Classic Who Classic Who now, you know, looking back and thinking, oh, yeah, bit of set wobble, but I don't care because it's... No, exactly. It's part, of the, it's part of the culture and the history of Doctor Who, essentially. And in the next, very next episode that starts the, the, the Mind Warp story, we do get a fantastic scene with the TARDIS materialising and the sea, the water on this particular planet is pink and the light is a certain tone because it's bouncing off a planet that is really close in that you can see on the horizon and that looks amazing. That pinks, cool. That's cool as fuck. But yeah, the wobbly robot, yeah, maybe not so much. But yeah, <laughs> I, I, I thought, literally as you, I thought it was okay. Okay, I guess is the best way of wording it. Yeah, I mean, if if we're talking about numerical values, like I've done several times in this season, he says waffling for time as he brings up notes that he forgot to bring up just before. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> come on, I've lost them. I think the file shut down. <laughs> but I think that this is going to get my lowest rating of the season so far. To be brutally honest. Okay. Um, okay. It's not awful. It's just not as good as the rest of the stuff we've watched. Mm, yeah, fair enough. So, uh, I know it's Hartnell. What are we doing next week? Uh, I'm, I'm just finding that now. I will uh, tell you. Like oh, it's the Ark. The Ark, there we go. Yes, indeed. I asked that question normally to remind, so you can remind me, but I know already, but I thought, you know, force of habit, I'd ask. There we go. The Ark, yes. 1966. Dodo and Stephen are your companions. And I think this is the one where the first couple of episodes are set in a certain place, and then the last two episodes are set at the same place, but many, many years in the future. Cool. What an interesting little twist there. I don't think I've seen this for a very long time. 
It'd be interesting to see Dodo and Steven again, though, because what we've seen of them has been quite minimal, hasn't it? So, yeah, I think in fact, I think it's just been um, the toy maker. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, I think this might be Dodo's first story. Maybe I think this one as well. Isn't this one of the ones where there's um, some animation involved? No, I don't think so. Or is it Shadow or only one? I think this is. Um, I think this is complete. And what makes that stand out in my memory is that the whole story before it is missing, mm. and the story after it is the toy maker, which is majority majority that's missing. Right. And I think this stood out when I looked at it because it's the earliest in this particular season. I think it's season three, four, three maybe. This is the earliest story in season three that's complete. Fair enough. I think I could again. I could be getting that wrong. That's off the top of my head, but I'm fairly certain that the one before it, the, the massacre at St. Bartholomew's massacre, something like that, that's completely missing. And then the Toy Story after this is missing a great deal. And but this is com- it, it, this is all there. I think anyway. Cool. I might yeah, be wrong to get into it. Uh, feel, it feels like forever since we lasted any heart, and so. Mm, yes. Well. Dear boy. Yes. Ha ha, silly girl. Um, oh, shut my pants. <laughs> uh, Dan, whereabouts can people find your good self online, my friend? I'm over on that Twitter X Twix thing at Dan Griffin21, usually tweeting an absolute load of bollocks about 90s football, wrestling, Doctor Who, general movies, sci fi, whatever takes my fancy that day. If you want to hear more of me talking about stuff, uh, I'm over on Unbooking the Territory, as briefly mentioned previously, where we look at the first and last of professional wrestling and have some side projects, uh, one following the life and times of Tank Abbott called Unbooking the Tankatory, Unputting the Territory, where we look at the uh, the title changes and defences of the Being the Elite Championship in legitimate sporting competitions such as Gator Golf and a variety of random party games coming up in Season 2. And finally, Unstacking Daditory, where we're looking at every surviving match involving Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks from 1977 all the way through to their titanic Wembley showdown on FA Cup final day in 1981, when 18 million people watched them belly bounce each other into oblivion, I presume. I haven't got there yet. It's a, it's a fun education in, into British wrestling for me. I didn't mean to sound so dis- disparaging. It is a lot of fun. Um, so come along and join us there. Uh, lastly, and by no means least, you can find me on SJP World Media, the, the network that carries this very show, with my strike partners, the magnificent Matt Lewis and Connor from Connor Knows Footy on The Volley, where we provide alternative commentary for Premier League games primarily, but have also dipped our toes into the MLS uh, and AFCON and, and tournaments like that. Um, yeah, we give alternate commentary, talk a load of, uh, of random stuff on tangents as we do on this show, and inevitably one of us scoffs a pie at halftime because I took athletic endeavor and turned it into fat bastardry fantastic stuff i hope when you get to the conclusion of unstacking the datatory i've said that right haven't i yes yes um being 1981 there is some kind of big reference to the almighty shaken stevens and um any television that's on at the same time just to make it as much 81 as we can possibly get on that particular episode perhaps the end when season two comes out, uh, we do. Go, Rob does go through the uh, the TV listings that were on at the same time. Doctor Who, Doctor Who inevitably gets mentioned. 
amazing stuff amazing stuff anything that i'm involved in you can find or follow via the network that carries this show that's at sjp world media on facebook twitter youtube spotify uh apple pod republic pod whatever it's, it's fucking everywhere mate just go and follow it do you know what I mean just just click like <laughs> and subscribe you know, all that's all good shit um, available on all good podcast providers and some shit ones yeah, exactly if you enjoy what we do make sure you're sharing it out there and telling your friends that's quite important that we get more uh, more attention more subscribers more listeners on the shows themselves um they're not easy to do they're not especially when you're working with someone as unprofessional as i they're not easy to do it's not cheap to produce so the more listeners and attention we have the better um but most importantly you can find and follow this show itself on twitter and facebook and that's at the doctor who pod that's at the d-r-w-h-o-p-o-d at the doctor who pod i'm off now dan um to i suppose do a lot of editing to this because i'm on nights all over the place so i've had a, a bit of a silly evening talking to you and i've said some stuff that probably shouldn't go out on the show I will speak to you next week, my friend. Enjoy listening back to your own bullshit. That's where everyone else as always. Thank you for listening. I think I did really well not to make a joke about everybody trying to get into Perry's ration shoot together because that was just Taylor made because that was what uh, Katrika wanted to do. Ah, oh, dear me. Yes. <laughs> nice serving, <laughs> number 34. Uh- <laughs> it's the end. But the moment has been prepared for. I don't want to go. That was a nice nap. Now, down to business. It's going to be interesting what you think of this, to be honest. Hang on a second. I've done my standard thing. I press record, then pick my phone up to make sure I've got something I want on there. And I haven't. Smooth. I'm so fucking professional. <laughs> you really put emphasis on fucking professional. Yeah. Right then. Right then. Three, two, one. Oh, hang on, I've got a yawn. <laughs> That's got to go on the outtakes at the end. Ooh, hey, fuck me. I've working nights, man. Jeez, it's the first time I've done it in like 20 years. And the actual working of it, not a problem at all. Everything else around it, I, fuck, I feel like a zombie. <laughs> Jeez, and, and I'm just thinking of the Cranberry song. <laughs> good record, that. I love, I love that tune. Yeah. yeah, really, really good cover version by I can't remember the name of the band now. Bad Wolves. Think, yeah, because they were supposed to have um, what's her face. That's right, but she passed away, didn't she? Yeah, 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 yeah. Really good cover version. Like, even if the lead singer Bad Wolves is a bit of a knob, but yeah, we won't get into that. <laughs> why can't we have nice things why is everybody a prick yeah Vince McMahon um, we- <laughs> <laughs> fucking hell anyway <clears throat> three two one <laughs>